Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday night, Monday morning. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Nails on the Chalkboard podcast. I'm your host, Brian Scott Rippy, the world's shittiest interviewer. Today we have Weldon Rodenberg. Uh, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer back joining us. Uh, Weldon and I are going to get into some uh, fall camp stuff. Ole Miss is a week into fall camp, so we covered a lot of different stuff here. Braylon Sanders, uh, Matt Corral, Kiffin being pissed at the defense on after Sunday scrimmage, probably your typical fall camp thing. So a uh, lot to cover today. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry through years of wisdom and experience. Here's the deal. If you're going into football season blind, you're going to end up paying the man more than the man pays you. With Skybox, you can flip the script and you can rob the house. There you, you pay them a fee. They give you picks. Those picks hit and you profit. It's pretty simple. So you need to check these guys out heading into football season. They're doing a NASCAR giveaway right now, or NASCAR promo right now, I should say, where if you sign up for a NASCAR package in the month of August and use the promo code NASCAR, you get 30% off. And that's in addition to the 20% off you'd get using the Rippy Rights promo code, which is you just type in the word Rippy, last name, R-I-P-P-E-E. You need to go check these guys out. They have... Month-long passes, you could try it for a week. You could do a daily pass. I would recommend just doing the year-long all sports. It's going to pay for itself and then some. But as football season comes and nears, you need to check out Skybox Sports Picks. Just give them a try for a week. Do a daily pass. I promise you you're going to return profit. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They've got a couple articles uh, coming out about how to make you a smarter gambler, and they give you that for free. Hard to beat it. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Y'all know the deal. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's rippywrights.substack.com. You don't have to hear my voice. You get newsletters three to five times a week, and you get discounted meats, which would probably be pretty cool unless you're rich and own a laundromat. That's an inside joke about 2% of you are going to get, but that's okay. Anyway, check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, Oxford is lucky to have it. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi and the world, for that matter, to get meat. Go check them out. All kinds of sausages, Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, bacon wrap fillets, all kinds of fresh seafood. I'm telling you, don't go to Kroger for your grilling needs. You need to go to LB's. Greg wants to put the best product available and enhance your grilling experience. I promise you he will do that for you. Greg Caters, you need to go check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Woden Rodenberg and I are about to talk fall camp for about 90 minutes. So buckle up, got into a ton of different stuff. Here we go. All right, man. What's up, dude? Weldon Rodenberg back with us, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, uh, now living in the Houston area, uh, regular contributor to the podcast uh, at least once a week. I had to figure out the schedule. We'll probably do Sunday nights, maybe some Friday stuff uh, as the season gets going, but uh, thrilled to have him in case you missed that news. What's up, man? Nothing much. Yeah. I mean, schedule's been interesting. When you text me, I, I jump on. So nothing wrong with that. But uh, everything's good over here. Yeah, that's how that's really just how this is going to roll. Um, my schedule is basically waking up a day and a half before and being like, oh, hell, I have to record another podcast. What are we going to do this week? So uh, I'm glad you are uh, flexible in that sense. 
we are uh we're a week into fall camp it is a full-on fall camp churn as we kind of get closer and closer to the season not kind of i mean literally by the day you're getting closer to the season Ole Miss about three weeks out from its season opener against louisville and we did a podcast did we do one back and maybe it was a fall camp preview yeah i don't think we've done one since fall camp i wrote a couple of newsletter nuggets on i think it was tuesday and it felt kind of silly in the sense that like I hadn't learned, like we hadn't learned a whole lot yet, right? They were helmets and I'm sure shorts the first couple of days or whatever the case may be. But now we are a full on weekend to this thing. Ole Miss had a scrimmage on Saturday, had another one on Sunday. I got a couple of different topics to take your way. But first I'll kind of start with an open-ended one. Now that you're a week into camp and you have film to analyze, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase in terms of whether that'd be practice or some pseudo scrimmage like settings, what is what is kind of the feeling a week into camp? Uh, maybe the better way to ask that is like, at what point do you get to the whole cliche of we're tired of hitting each other thing? What's one week into camp like? One week into camp is really kind of an acclimation period, especially for the for the players and the coaches. Like, all right, you know, we're back into rhythm, we're back into repetition. Um, but that point of tired of hitting each other comes much later. I mean, you still got young kids out there excited to be out there. The coaches are excited, but that, uh, the daily drag, I guess you could call it a fall camp starts like week three or four. Once you start doing the same things over and over again, the same weekly schedule, you know, it it does, it gets old. And especially for the players, you know, you start getting some nicks, you start getting some bruises. You're like, damn, like, do I really want to keep practicing? But week one, it's it's all action, and I think they're definitely excited to be out there, and they should be because you know football season's coming up, and you got to start earning your position. When you go four or five practices, so I guess Ole Miss started last Sunday, practice three times, I guess maybe four Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, off day Thursday, and then a practice before they get into the scrimmages. Is like media, we're always like skeptical to draw anything from one, the kind of truncated part of practice that we do get to see where by the time the Matt Luke era had come around, it was literally some stretching. Luke Logan would bang a few field goals off the uprights (laughs) and then we'd be out of there. But now that they've had two scrimmages and it's back-to-back days, like, can you take, how much do you guys as a staff or evaluation take from two? Because I don't know, I'm not there, obviously. I don't know exactly what they did, but how much can you take from, one or two scrimmage days a week into camp. Like, is that pretty impactful in terms of like, oh, you know, you have a newcomer coming along. Like, how real is that? What are the kind of concrete takeaways, if any? I mean, you evaluate everything. So you're going to take away positives and negatives from the scrimmage no matter what. Um, Do you just be biased about those results for the rest of fall practice? You try not to. I mean, if some kid has a really good day, you know, maybe that was just his day. Or if he, someone has a really bad day or a, a position group, you know, you try not to be, I guess, you know, totally biased towards what you see from one scrimmage. Um, but, you know, it's not the end of the world for any player. It's not, you know, set in stone of what happened that day compared to the rest of practice. But it's a, it's a kind of a marker for where you're at after one week at least. Let's start on the defensive side of the football, because I think that's probably when you talk about this team, 
and expectations and things like that. And we haven't even really gotten too deep into what would be a successful season, what a reasonable outlook is. And there's a reason for that because we're a week into camp and like, it would be, it would seem silly to kind of do that right now. But when you look at like kind of the grand scheme of things in this football team, it'll probably kind of go as the, as far as the defense will take it, right? Because you had an offense last year that was much better than I think most people thought it would be. I, you know, you had some talent there. You knew you had arm talent in Matt Corral. I think the, the competency of Lane Kiffin as both a play caller and Jeff Levy running an offensive system maybe was undersold slightly just from the whole general buzz of like, you know, you have a big boy kind of running your program now in terms of Lane Kiffin. So you knew that was good. And you had an Ole Miss team that scored pretty much at will on pretty much anyone aside from a couple games, but you saw what can happen when they don't have a great defense and they didn't have a good defense last year. And they went five and five, which in a normal year, what they could have been eight and four last year, which is kind of crazy to think about, right. With some non-conference easily. And so this year, if they're going to take another step and they're going to enter that nine-win range, or if you really want to get crazy and the way the schedule seemingly breaks in their favor on paper, kind of maybe a 10-win range, which would be monumental for the program, I think it's going to fall on the shoulders of the defense. Would you have any sort of uh, rebuttal, disagree, agree with that at all? It seems fairly clear. No, I mean, I, I agree. I definitely agree. You got to get as much out of that group as you can, but you also have to make sure the offense is on point every game, especially with the way the team's built. You can't have a six turnover, five turnover game in any season, by the way. I mean, when Ole Miss beat Bama in in 15, they had five turnovers. Like you will lose football games in the SEC if you don't, if you're not on par um, with your strengths, but the weakness is the defense. That's what's going to have to, rise if this team needs to get where it's going to go and kiffin was very pissed about the defense to put it frankly after sunday i watched the video of a you know 30 minutes i've not seen the video so we did the podcast i mean it wasn't anything like you've got to go must see tv it was your typical fall camp press conference whatever it wasn't anything out of the ordinary but i've noticed kiffin has gotten i hesitate to say this because i'm not around the program every day and i'm not actually in the room and so i don't want to like speak out of turn but he's kind of kind of taken a page out of Andy Kennedy's playbook in the sense that a lot of times he sends messages to dudes through the media. Kermit Davis does this a little bit, but Kermit will just say like, you know, Dom Olenicek was terrible today. Like Kermit was very much straightforward to where AK was a little coded. (laughs) And I don't think this is some like novel concept. Coaches do it. But I was watching a Kiffin press conference earlier in the week with Braylon Sanders. Maybe I think it was, he was talking about, he was talking about someone with regard to consistency. And it was clear that he was like, literally talking to the kid while looking at a camera type of thing. And I think there was a little bit of that with the defense today. He was mad about the tackling. He was impressed with the first team offense is what he said, but he was very clearly upset with the defense. And I'm going off of a lot of this off of a a good story that Neil McCready wrote. I would encourage you to describe to rebelgrove.com about practice today. He talked about the paradox of a scrimmage for a football coach, right? Because if one side dominates the other, are you good in one side or really crappy on the other side? How do you, how do you, like, how, do, how does it, how does a staff look at that from an evaluation standpoint, particularly when one side of the football has been lagging so far behind the other one for really almost five, six years at this point. Now, how do you look at that in base of scrimmage when one side has historically been worse and you're almost like wanting to will them to improve? Yeah, it, it's actually interesting because, Last year in the scrimmages, I don't know if there was any comments about this, but 
the offense like struggled against the defense. I remember this. Yes. Yeah. Like they, I mean, they were, you know, it wasn't like you're struggling the entire scrimmage, like incapable of moving the football or anything, but they, they really did have some growing pains and that was in the first year of the scheme. So it, it does make sense, but it is kind of an interesting situation when it's one side of the ball dominates the other side of the ball. Cause it's all your team and you're playing against each other and you're scripting the scrimmage. So it's like, you know, you don't script for the offense to have success on one play. You know, you're running a play, the defense is running, you know, probably a scheme to at least be semi-effective against that play. And if the offense is just kicking your ass up and down the field, that's not good. There's no way, shape or form to, you know, say, you know, find some silver lining in that. Um, so it's, it's difficult, but it doesn't mean it's time to panic <laughs> if you're on the team or a fan, you know. It's one scrimmage. It's it's going to be some growing pains with some new guys in there as well. It, this sounds something you just said stuck out to me there. This sounds like a stupid question on the surface, but I thought what you said was interesting regarding the defense playing, like having some sort of scheme or play or whatever it may be to be kind of somewhat suited to defend whatever the offense is running. I know Kiffin's, I know you were only around Kiffin in the program for a year, and but I imagine there's some sort of standard or some sort of semblance of like this is how we do things with regard to scrimmages. How common is that in terms of like the defense knowing what the offense is about to run in a scrimmage like setting? How much is is there any element to surprise in scrimmages? What is this? What does the scripting look like in that sense? So the script, I was not a part of the scripting. So you know that was an analyst, GA, head coach going through every single practice and figuring out what you're going to do for the scrimmage. Sure. You know, you have your certain packages, your certain plays you're going to run. But just what I what I meant was, you know, if we're if the offense is running a certain play, I don't know, all goes, the defense isn't going to run an all out blitz. Like you're not going to set up your own team for failure in a scrimmage just to, you know, get a reaction. That's not how it works. You'll have a pretty base defense and you run your offensive plays. The defense doesn't know what's coming. The coaches might have an idea, but the players don't, you know, you're not telling them before the play what it's going to be. That doesn't help your team at all. So that's kind of what I meant. Like you're not setting up one side of the ball for failure, for failure by running a certain play on the other side. Right. So you're saying in the sense that 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 was just interesting to me. You're kind of saying that both coaches, like either like the offensive coaches and the defensive coaches kind of know what's coming, but the the guys on the field don't particularly know what's coming from a play standpoint. Correct. That That's what I meant by that. Okay. Like, you're not telling Momo like, hey, watch out for a pass here. Like that's right. That's stupid. You're not getting anything out of that if that's what's going on. But the coaches all have the script and the, you know, evaluation staff we all have as well. Okay, that makes sense. So the yeah. first thing that I'd like to get into, well, actually, I'll, I'll run one more thing by you because this was actually at the bottom of Neil's notes from practice today. So he had the starting, he wrote down and listed the starting lineups for both offense and defense. And so I'll just read them to you real quick and just see if anything stuck out. I didn't send you these beforehand, so just kind of rapid reaction here, anything sticking out. Offensively, it was Mingo, Drummond, Broker, Acker, Brown, Warren, James, Rogers at tight end, Braylon Sanders, the other receiver, Corral, and Ely. I would say just off the top, and feel free to take this wherever you want to. Um, Orlando, how do you is it Umana Umana? I can't say like the, no the Utah idea. transfer. Oh, what is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, I, who knows? <laughs> I don't get to hear the kids say his own name these days, so it's a little bit tougher. 
Uh, him not being at center was a little surprising. Not that you're taking, you know, they haven't even really released a depth chart, at least not anywhere I've seen. I'm not taking any huge, huge takeaways from this, but I did find that interesting. He was not out there. Uh, and then Caleb Warren running with the ones was interesting to me. Did anything else that I just read stand out to you at all on the offensive side of the ball? Well, I guess my first question, is anyone hurt? Like, are, are some of the guys out? That is certainly possible. I do not know. I do not know. Kiffin did say, you know, Kiffin doesn't get any injuries. He did say no one has a long-term injury to this point, but reading from the guys that were there at practice reporting each day this week, they do have some guys nicked up. No one on the offensive line that I could remember at least entering the scrimmage was nicked up. But again, like to your point, it could be something injury-wise or precautionary or they're just looking at something else. Like I'm not taking anything hugely away from that, but that was the first thing that kind of stuck out. Everything else seemed kind of standard. Yeah, no, I mean – just going through those, that's nothing is super surprising out of that group. Um, it's it's good to see – you said Eli Acker was in that group. Yeah, it was uh, – so the offensive yeah. line goes Broker, Acker, Brown, Warren, and James. Yeah, that's not surprising to me. I think that's a group that makes a lot of sense. Um, Acker was switching between outside and inside, so I guess they found a place for him that they like and he likes and he's comfortable with, which is good because he's uh, he's got a chance to be a gr- really good player. Uh, the wide receivers all make complete sense. I'm interested to see which one was playing in the slot. Um, I guess we won't see it, but, you know, with those three, I guess they're putting Braylon in the slot. Um, but I do not know. And then obviously running back quarterback, you know, you're getting there. But nothing too crazy out of that group. Um, and really with these scrimmages, who's starting out there first, especially week one, is just not that big of a deal, you know. It's probably just the group they're comfortable with. And, you know, they'll mix and match the offensive line, the receivers as they go from first group, second group, third group. So it's really not a big deal no matter what. But um, let's hear defense. Who was that? So we'll go on the defensive side. One more thing, though, I had for you real quick. Something you said was kind of interesting to me on that. What is the what is the value of versatility of guys being able to move inside and out? Because I remember I was talking to Jack Bicknell Jr. one day and <laughs> – it was something just off to the side. I don't even think this was a press conference setting. And he was talking about how, like, I asked him some sort of question, I think some similar line of questioning to this about, like, versatility and guys moving around in and out. And, of course, he spent a lot of time in the NFL. And so he was like, look, man, in the NFL, it's a 53-man roster. Like, guys want to say they're guards or tackles. And if you're not a starter, you're one of the two reserves. You're not a guard or a tackle because if we lose one – you go in and then we have one more on the bench. So you're going to play where we need you to play. You are not, you, you don't have a position in the NFL. If you're particularly, if you're not a starter, like you're going to play where we need to, what is the, uh, what is the value? And then I guess a two-parter is like, what is the difficulty of moving both inside and out? And I imagine, obviously I'm answering my own question here, but brings immense value to be able to do so. How hard is that to do? Um, Let me see. I'm going to phrase this question or this answer It is. I don't think it's not impossible to do, but it's incredibly important if you can do it. I mean, just from an NFL standpoint, uh, the kid from Mississippi State, Elton Jenkins plays for the Green Bay Packers. He played every single position on the offensive line, multiple snaps in different games. I mean, that's invaluable. I mean, it's incredible that he's able to do that at that level. And I know we don't like Mississippi State and all that fun stuff, but that's incredible. Uh, In college – you can get away from building an offensive line standpoint with average guard play. 
you can get away with average guard play. So your best athletes, your best players are going to be on the outside. Um, but you want to have at least eight who can play. And do those three backups play guard, center, tackle? No, they play whatever they need to play to get into the game. Out center is a little more specialized. It's a little bit different. But guard and tackle, you got to be able to be interchangeable and flexible. And a guy like Acker has done it. Jeremy James played guard. Now he's at tackle. So it's not a super, super difficult transition. But you do have to have some football IQ to be able to get up. Okay, I'm on the left side of the line, the right side of the line. Where am I pulling? Yada, yada, yada. But it's uh, it's super, super important at both levels, NFL and college. Yeah, and there's also, just from a kind of layman's knowledge of it, in terms of being able to move inside and out, there has to be a base level of athleticism there because there are guys that are not athletic enough to play tackle but can cut it at guard, correct? And it's also different body builds. Well, it's different body builds. I mean, just from a recruiting standpoint, there's different evaluation, you know, traits that you look for at each position. I mean, tackle these days, you know, if you look at the NFL draft, these guys are all like former tight ends that right. are just big undersized offensive linemen, oversized tight ends. They grow into their body. They still have got the foot quicks and everything you need on the edge. And that's, you know, hands and athleticism is huge. Inside, you know, you don't have to be as tall. You don't have to be as long, but you have to be able to have a base. You know, when you're pass blocking, run blocking, you've got to be have a strong lower body to be able to, to, you know, block different kinds of players. You know, three techs are different than guys outside. They're slower, but stronger. Center, you just have to be smart. You know, you have to know what's going on. But, you know, it's there's different things you look for in different kinds of players. But these days, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of a guy to get him on campus when you're recruiting offensive linemen. You might want him as a tackle, but he might end up as a guard when you see his foot quicks or vice versa. Is there – this was just a quite quick one out of curiosity for me before we move on. It's like plug-and-play seems nearly impossible, recruiting kids out of high school to come play the offensive line. Not, not impossible. That's probably too strong of a term. You've got to be a dude who's fully grown, it seems like, too. Because, I mean – Laramie Tunsil, if my knowledge, if my memory serves me correct, did not start his college opener against Vanderbilt. He did play that night, but I'm pretty sure he did not start. Like the plug and play with freshmen is harder than any other place in the field in college football, is it not? Because, I mean, anytime you talk about kids needing to get stronger and getting in the weight room, yes, is that the case for other positions? Absolutely. But it's most common with the offensive line. You talk about transforming bodies. That seems to be where most, like the most stereotypical transform your body, add weight, add strength. It seems very hard to find a kid to come out of high school and be able to play on the offensive line in the SEC immediately. Yeah, it's it's impossible. I mean, or not. Okay. It's I didn't want to say it because I don't unheard. have the knowledge. I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, no, it's unheard of. I mean, I know Ole Miss fans, I guess, are a little spoiled. They went from Laramie Tunsil to Greg Little. Two both pretty good ones. Yeah, they're both pretty good. And they both basically started as freshmen. That just doesn't happen. You know, it's the most developmental position, uh, I think, at least, in football when it comes to younger kids. You know, it just doesn't – you don't see these guys come out and playing as freshmen. And if they're playing as freshmen, it's probably they shouldn't be playing as freshmen. It's a team issue and a depth issue more than a this guy is just so damn dynamic. We can't, <laughs> can't keep him off the field. And Broker plays a freshman a lot. But that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, he probably shouldn't be playing as a freshman. 
Um, it's, it's so hard, especially in this league. It's just different bodies. There was a kid in 19, Ole Miss for the first time in quite a while it, after Greg Little left, if I think I had that right, was I – can't, I can't remember this kid's name. I should look it up, but I wouldn't. He was a former tight end, I think, that struggled to add weight. Well, there's Royce were, Newman was a former tight end, a basketball guy, and then uh, Alex Givens was another one. No, so both of them are stick out immediately. This kid, I want to say, was a walk-on at some point, and they were trying to get him at one of the tackle spots. And it ended up working out okay, but that first game against Memphis was just an abject disaster. I, I, I can't remember for the life of me. If I ever if, uh, I'm gonna find it in a second, but I guess what I'm getting at there is like when you do have to play a guy who probably shouldn't be playing, and this was a different case because this kid was actually older. There's no hiding it. You, oh, you oh, it's the kid that played tight end. It was, um, yeah, it was a total experiment, and the name is escaping me. But that's ex- that's a, a prime example of a guy who you would you project, and you're like, okay, we see him in practice. He is like incredibly athletic, but just doesn't get the position down. I cannot think of the kid's name though. <laughs> I, I, I'm doing <laughs> just some- bad podcasting. I'm sorry, but I, I cannot think of his name. I, I can look at him. He was like they said the meanest player on the team, like the least likely kid you want to get in a bar fight with. Michael like, Howard. He, yes, that, yeah, that was some great podcasting by us. We just brother-in-lawed that as well because it gave me time to look this up on the internet. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly what it was. And the poor kid, it wasn't his fault. But, man, that day at Memphis, it, he was just having a time. Yeah, it was bad. I remember. Yeah, now that you bring it up, that's a sad flashback there. Because that was the – he shouldn't have been playing, like you said. No, and it was like no. it was. I remember it was like a major storyline that it's like, hey, this kid's kept his weight on. And I feel like if that kid's going to be a starting tackle for you in the SEC, I shouldn't have him to keep updating in my practice notes that he has maintained his weight. Yeah, like no, that's never a good sign. That's that's a trying to find you know something where there's nothing. <laughs> uh, absolutely, that's a great way to put it. Last uh, offensive line thing before we move on to something else. One of the things I, I may have asked you this on the first podcast we did, I can't remember, but with Orlando Umano Umano, I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher this until I actually hear this audibly. So sorry, glad I'm not an announcer. With him coming in and having a ton of you know major college football snaps under his belt, he was an All Pac-12 selection in 19. He seems like a pretty good football player that it seems very obvious that he is going to come in and contribute almost immediately. So with that being the case, it seemingly the logical thing to do, if he could play center, you could move Ben Brown kind of back to his native guard position. How big of a boost is that for his, for both the offensive line and a depth standpoint, that seems obvious. How big of a boost is that for Ben Brown and also his, his hopes at the next level? What does that look like in your mind? Just, kind of base level. Yeah, I mean, it's great for offensive line depth, for sure. And I think the coaches are pretty confident that Ben Brown's best position is guard and the best position for his NFL future is guard. So for him, I mean, it's huge. And he's already had time at center. So NFL teams will have that film on the center and they'll have his guard film from freshman year. So it's not um, world changing for him, but it is good for the team to know that you have five of those you're confident in. Me personally, like I said last time, I'm not overly confident in the Pac-12 kid until I see it. Right. Uh, we talked that we that brought out the uh, that brought out the Rommel Mayeo reference, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Well, I, I say that because you know this whole transfer portal. Every time a kid went in the portal, we watched him. No, it doesn't matter who it was. We would cut him up. We watch him as his offensive staff, or Kiffin would watch him, or whatever, and just. 
So you mean like literally every kid? Like pretty much? Every kid from a Power Five conference for sure. That's interesting. Okay. And then names you hear from lower conferences that somebody has a connection to or whatnot, we'll cut them up as well and watch them. Um, But, man, every time you watched a Pac-12 kid, it was just like, this kid sucks. (laughs) <laughs> this kid's not good. You know, we don't, want this, we don't want this kid at all. Like, I think there were some offensive linemen from UCLA who was like a, you know, a two-time Pac-12 selection, blah, 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 blah. We watched him like, no, not interested. Don't want him. Which is why, like, I think I mentioned this last time, like, they wouldn't take this kid if they weren't confident in him. Like, they're, they're pretty good evaluators. They know what they don't want, and they clearly like this kid a lot. Um, so I think it's good to have him for depth long answer, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So switching to the defensive side of the ball, this is what Neil had as far as who was on the first team defense, Sam Williams, Quentin Bivens, Tisdale, Momo Sonogo, Lakia Henry, really nothing overly shocking there. I do have a couple of Tariq, Tis, Tariq is Tisdale questions to toss it away later. Yeah. Tylen Knight, Dean Leonard, Jalen Jones, AJ Finley, Otis Reese, and Keydron Smith. The only one that stands out to me there is Tylen Knight. And of course, again, we'll preface everything we say with it's the first scrimmage, whatever. Is that a, is just a guess based on the other names you heard? Is that a slot corner thing you figure? What do you, yeah. where was he playing? Slot, some sort of slot corner. And I mean, that's just indicative of where, you know, the roster still needs a lot of improvement. Tylen Knight works his ass off, but he is an exception to the rule. <laughs> you can't, you just, you shouldn't, you can't build a team with Tyler Knights. And he's a good player to an extent, but there's such a limit to him. And I don't, I, I don't really take a lot from that whole starting defense in the first scrimmage. Cause I don't think that's what it's going to look like at all come week four scrimmage and week one playing. I just, that, that would be shocking if that was a team they put out there. And that's yeah, really I- comfortable with that group. And that's what they, they know these guys are going to know what to do. So they're going to put him out there and then they'll mix in the younger kids later. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And I agree with you to an extent, particularly on the back end and the secondary about being pretty shocked if that's what they rolled out there with Labor Day night, because another one is, and again, like I don't want to make this into like a, Oh, why wasn't this kid out here starting the first team defense on August 15th or whatever the hell it is. Exactly. It's pointless. But like you mentioned where the roster is at, I agree. But there's there are some other options too there, right? Like Jalen Jordan had some pretty good reps uh, at – did I say that – did I just make that name up? No, no, no. You're no, Jalen Jordan. Okay, I thought I, I don't know why. Jaden, Jalen, I had Jaden. A lot of Jalens and Jadens. Yeah, yes. it's, it's – you know, we had J1 and J2 for a while, as Mike McIntyre called it. But, yeah, that kid played pretty well in spots last year, both at the slot corner, and I think he may have played a little safety, if I'm not mistaken, last year. Maybe not. Maybe I just made that up. Maybe that was Tylen. But, like, they have some other options there. And so, as we kind of get into – you know, I mentioned we were going to – this is – you'll get used to this on the podcast – I mentioned we were going to start with the defense and then we went into a 20 minute segment on the offensive line, which, you know, things are just, uh, things are just flying by the seam of our pants here, but defensively Kiffin was very upset with particularly the way they tackled. And I've always wondered this and I'm honestly kind of shocked. I haven't either asked you this in the past or on the podcast before tackling is, has been a huge issue for Ole Miss, uh, particularly the last four years. I mean, my God, how many times do I have to hear uh, crime dog McGriff talk about eye discipline and leaky yardage and just see the fits better? I mean, I could play the whole, I could play all the hits. 
But in a day and age where you're uber cautious with good reason about kids and tackling kids and bringing them to the ground. And there's generally even all the way up to the NFL, less time to do what you want to do. How do you effectively practice tackling when it seems like the whole goal nowadays, and it's always been the goal generally, but more conscious now about injuries. How do you effectively practice tackling when you also don't want to get anybody hurt? Like, do you just let them, destroy the walk-ons that they picked up from J.A. and prep? Like, how does that work? It's, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, it's a lot of individual drills. There's not a lot of team tackling drills at practice, obviously, because the more people you've got around each other, the more, you know, knees you can hit and ankles and whatnot. Um, so you just really just practice fundamentals. You do a ton of drill work and as much as you can to get in the, the mindset of the kids, like, hey, like, this is how you do it correctly. This is how we want you to do it. The, but a lot of it is just, you know, it's self-made. It's the aggression that you have as a player. It's all about a mindset. That's, uh, tackling is such a mindset. You get, you, like, you'll see Otis Reese this year. It's going to look like a different kind of player out there because he's going to have a different mindset when it comes to, I want to knock this kid's head off. And we just have a lot of nice kids on the team in the past few years. Um, when it comes to scrimmage tackling, it's kind of a weird deal because you'll have like thud periods and tackle periods and it'll be kind of mixed in throughout the scrimmage. But man, if you can't get up to tackle, you know, when it comes to tackle period as just a competitor, that's a problem and and they'll address it and they'll figure it out. Um, but golly, that's like the last thing you want to hear from a scrimmage. Bad tackling. So that's to, to you for someone that's worked inside of it. You you're, you're saying that that's not a great indicator. Like that's I mean, not something you want to hear. It's not something I would want to hear. You know, right. if, you let, if you let a really good offense beat you down the field, like you don't, obviously you don't want that either. You know, like we said, it's a, it's a, t- a tough situation, you know, grading out what's going on, but I mean, you don't get to hit a people very often in practice. And then you, that time comes and, you're, these guys have been in the program for a while and they still struggle in that department. It's just not a great sign, but it's not the end of the world. Like we said, and preface with everything we say week one scrimmage. <laughs> sure. But you know, the content machine never sleeps. So of course not. <laughs> so kind of building off of that, I thought what you kind of said there for a second, talking about nice kids is interesting because I've actually had this theory about the baseball team a couple of times to where Mississippi state, kind of just plays with a bit more of an asshole attitude. Uh, and I think that's, you know, Ole Miss needed some more Jake Mangums over the years as far as the attitude and the mindset thing as it pertains to baseball. Completely different sports, two completely different things, and this analogy may not work at all. But when you evaluate kids, I try to tie as much as I can back to, you know, what you did with the team. So when you're evaluating prospects, how do you quantify that? And how much do you weigh that in? to an evaluation, I guess you can't really see it until you get it in person. But like when you were watching a high school kid, are you looking for like to check the box that, Hey, this kid might have a screw loose and that's a good thing. Like how did, how do you evaluate that? It's a, it's, it's a balance, you know, you really don't, I, I guess nice kids is kind of a demeaning term in football. Sometimes um, you, you, you have to have good kids. You can't, you know, recruit a team of, for lack of a better word, of just assholes. You know, you can't have yeah. kids who are a pain in the ass and kids are difficult to deal with and going to be a locker room problem. 
even if they knock people's heads off. If you build a team like that, you will fail and it will be glorious failure. <laughs> and teams have done it before where they just say, you know, screw the character part of the recruiting. We just want kids who are just mean. Um, but you also can tell if you watch a full game of a kid's film, you know, which kids really want to be physical. Like, it's just so obvious, especially these guys playing the big leagues in high school. I mean, if you're roughing up some of the kids in Miami and Dallas and Houston, New Orleans, um, the bigger stages in Mississippi, and you're knocking kids' heads off, you know, and you'll do it continuously. And those kids are just you know, usually very, very highly rated, very, very good football players. And so it's not easy to build a team of them, but it's important to find kids like that that have the character behind it. It really is. And that sounds so cliche and dumb and, you know, but it's not because you have to build a team. If you have a bunch of kids, like I said earlier, pardon my French, just a bunch of assholes, it's going to be a problem. Makes sense. And so, and I'm not going to make you go through all the defense and go, nice guy, asshole, nice guy, asshole. That, no, and I really, you shouldn't say asshole because these are college football players, and that's not fair to them. That, that's a bad choice of wording. But, but no, no, I say it all the time. Don't worry. If you say it, just say it with your <laughs> chest. I do. I say outlandish things all the time. It's all good. We know what you mean, though. Seriously, like have, right. have a little bit of an edge to you. Like, like exactly. We, not kids are assholes, just having a little bit of that in you. It, it works right. in baseball, the same thing. I've made that analogy a ton of times on the baseball podcast. And so I guess I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this without going through the, the, the roster and like having you analyze each kid. <laughs> you talked about Otis Reese having like, that was one that stuck out. I didn't even really ask you about that. And you said, you're going to see a different player. Does Ole Miss, like, is there anyone else on the roster to you right now that's been around the program a couple of years that has that, like that, that we're going to rough kids up and really enjoys getting physical? The reason I ask you that is because clearly it's been obviously lacking, but I just wonder if they've had one or two guys when you need six or seven of them. Like, is there anyone else on the roster that sticks out uh, in that regard? Yeah, and it's really only one factor to your ability to be a complete player on defense. You know, being physical, there are other attributes that need to go into it. If you're just a physical guy and you have, like, no foot quicks, no agility, no knowledge of where you're at and what you're doing, it's, it doesn't really matter. Um, Jalen Jordan's a physical kid for sure. You know, he was a – I think he was, like, a state champion power lifter, maybe even, like, a national champion power lifter. Um, and his film, golly, he was just knocking kids' heads off left and right. Um, if you go back and watch Otis Reese's high school film, which I guess I would recommend some people do if you want to see what that kind of player looks like, it's so obvious. <laughs> it is clear as day what the kind of the kind of player that he is and what kind of mentality he brings. Um, Sam Williams has that in him. You know, he's inconsistent, but that's the kind of guy he is. Um, trying to think down the list. Uh, MJ has had some of that in his film. He kind of played a little bit more offense, but I think you'll see a little bit more physical play out of him. Um, Lakia, he does when he's in shape and ready to go, he, he'll knock your head off. Um, the there Sam are some Williams, others here and there that'll show it. The Sam Williams part is kind of his whole story in general, right? Like you have it. Can we see it every down? And now that you said that, that's actually – when I was talking about earlier in the podcast, Kiffin kind of sending messages through media, that's that's who it was. He was talking about Sam Williams and wanting to see it every down. Like that's that it, the light bulb moment went off when you said that because he was clearly just being like, "Yeah, 
kid could earn a lot more money. Like if he does this every down, like it's, it was very obvious at that point. So moving on from like the tackling portion of it and getting into a couple of notes that I had written down from kind of the practice stuff this week, as far as secondary goes, so there's been a couple interesting developments. One was, I can't remember if it was Durkin or Partridge. I think it was Durkin talking about how they wanted Kedron Smith to move to safety. They felt like that was more of his natural position. And he was just like, sure, I'll do it. And apparently he's done very well at it. I'm just curious. I'll lead this in any direction you want to take it. What are your thoughts on that? How hard of a transition is that? And do you kind of, I guess, agree with that, their line of thinking of that's makes that's a more natural position. And if so, why? Uh, I think it makes sense to me. Um, it's not always a compliment to move a starting corner to safety. Uh, I know Jalen Jones did it when he was back in 17 or 18, whenever that was, um, after injury. Uh, I think it's probably a better fit for him. I think that it'll probably be a lot less one-on-one coverage. I think Kedron has good quicks, but maybe not the speed to keep up with some of the elite guys in the SEC outside which is probably why they moved him to safety. Um, You're probably going to be able to live, you know, with another guy out there at corner that may be more confident, another guy out there at corner. Uh, I'm not totally surprised by that move. And if they see and they're smart coaches, they see he's more comfortable there. And that's a position they need filled by a veteran guy that can quarterback the defense. I think it's probably a good move. Okay. And so the second part of that would be, there's been some miles battle buzz from him moving to corner from the offensive side of the football. I heard his name a couple of times this week, particularly in some practice notes. You know, I know you're not there and you haven't seen it. You're just like me, but do would you read anything into the fact that they made that move as he's come along a little bit, or am I reading too much into that? I, it can definitely have something to do with it. Um, I would imagine with a spring and now fall camp for miles at corner, he's probably getting it a lot more than he was when he was getting basically coached by T buck on the sideline playing in those games last year. Uh, I mean, he's, he's got an NFL corner body type. I don't know if he has NFL corner skills, you know, that's a probably the one of the toughest positions to play in that league and in this league. Um, but they must have some confidence in him and the young kids to be willing to move Kedron to safety, um, even if that is his, you know, quote unquote, more comfortable position, you know, you don't just move a starter that's been there for three years without having confidence in some other guys. What made Kedron Smith good at corner? Because you mentioned maybe the quickness is lacking. What was he able to over, what was he able to overcompensate that with or compensate it? Like what was, what, what, like how was he able to mask that if that was Uh, efficiency? Like in most positions, if you're not the quickest guy, you got to have some length and he is incredibly long. He's, he is talented. He's smart. He knows what to do. He's got a good anticipation. He's got pretty good ball skills, and that's ball skills and hands are different. Are different when you're talking about corners. Ball skills is you know being able to locate the ball, being able to be aware of your surroundings. Hands is just can't catch, and so it's a kind of a different deal. And he he had a lot of that. Just wasn't the quickest guy, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a good player out there. He was a very competent player at corner in this league. Sure. And the other part of that has to be that, you know, you get DeAndre Prince back in the program as well. Like, I mean, that's a kid that, like you mentioned, showed like flashes of being like, oh, you really have something here as a freshman. He had a couple picks in 19, if I remember correctly, was really good. 
And as you kind of go down, and I they haven't released a depth chart, so I'm just relying on something I wrote down off the top of my head over about 20 minutes. And so this could be wrong. And if you're, you're out there listening to this and you're like, why didn't you include him? Cause I didn't think of it. Like, this is not like, this is, this is not that thorough, right. but you could have a world where your corners and I'm not even naming starters, but you have options here, like legitimate options. It being Dean Leonard, Jaywin Jones, Ja'Cory Hawkins, Deontre Prince, Miles Battle, and then every time you hear someone ask about a newcomer, they mention Tashim Johnson. So those are five guys that I named that have played a decent amount of football. Like Ja'Cory Hawkins played some pretty good snaps for them last year. Maybe that was out of necessity, but he seemed like he was I, – I put it to you this way. I didn't notice him being horrible, which is sure. a good thing out of that defense, right? Like he seemed fine. So – the move, like you mentioned, it probably is better suited for Keedron Smith. But like, I guess if I guess what I'm getting at is, if they didn't have some newfound depth at corner, they probably couldn't afford to do this. Yeah, th- there is definitely more depth at that position, which lends you the ability to move some guys around, see where they're at at different positions. But even at the guys you named going down that list, you know, that's where this defense has to improve. I mean, they have to improve in every facet, obviously. But just recruiting-wise, they're probably a few classes away from building quality depth. And that's what the, the elite defenses have. You know, if Alabama, one guy goes down, you got, you know, Will Anderson coming to back him up as a true freshman with 10 sacks. I mean, it's just – it's a different level. And they're not at that, at that quality depth yet but they're getting there. And when you can see the things they're doing with the defense and where players are playing at, that they're slowly but surely getting to that level. Moving up toward kind of the front seven, one of the things that stuck out to me over the past week is I wrote a decent bit in the preseason and time leading up to this about Tariq Tisdale sort of kind of playing opposite of Sam Williams. And so this first question is just really for my own sake. When you have these odd front of defenses where you have three down linemen and then your ends are, I think it, Mike McIntyre technically called them outside linebackers, whatever the hell you want to call it. The buck position. The yeah, guys buck, which is what yeah. Sam Williams plays. Is there a buck on the other side or why is that other side called the end? What is the, is there, what is if any, difference between the two sides there like how, how do you differentiate that at all if that makes any sense it, it makes sense like I've mentioned multiple times not a defensive specialist by any means but your buck is usually your strong side of your defense God, I actually don't even know if that's right <laughs> I'm trying to we'll think say it just say, like I said say it with confidence you're never wrong no but I don't like I don't want to be wrong I don't like to be wrong um you know it's, it's really a different kind of position. It really, it's a completely different position. Your buck is an outside linebacker. You know, when you're playing four down, you've got your four eye or your head up, depending on however you play. And those guys are defensive ends. Right. Your buck does multiple things for you. Obviously, you want him to be a pass rush specialist and a hell of an athlete. I and mean, that needs to be your best athlete on the field because he's going to drop back in coverage if you're, you know, clouding blitzes and stuff like that. Sam Williams is a buck. You know, Cedric Johnson is a buck. Tariq Tisdale is not an outside linebacker. He is a defensive end. And that's, that's what I was getting. Ever be. Yeah. Right. Or defensive tackle, depending on how you want to play. 
but the, the buck is the most versatile best athlete you need to have on your team and sam is that and it's good to have a guy like him you know arden key for lsu back in the day the kid bama has now will anderson i've talked about him he's a freshman and he is phenomenal you know he's just he is unbelievable that kind of guy is what you think is like a prototype buck outside linebacker position wise that was a great answer for not proclaiming yourself as a defensive specialist because that makes <laughs> more sense now. So now moving that, – that leads us perfectly into the question I had about Tariqus Tisdale is it seems like from what – reading the tea leaves and seeing some of the practice videos of – I say practice videos, the Durkin and whoever else defensively talking about it, it seems like they're playing Tariqus Tisdale more on the interior. And that still, I guess, could be defensive in, in a, in a three down thing. Like I, I imagine there's some flexibility there. What are his, like, where do you think he's best suited? And then I guess on top of that, my question would be, what is the ideal fit to play like opposite of Sam Williams? Like what's the best fit? Is there one on the roster? Like what, what is that guy's job and who would you want to see there? You kind of have to make comparisons to past kind of players. I mean, I guess your ideal defensive end opposite of Sam Williams would be Tisdale, at least in my mind, because of, I mean, he is 6'5, six, 6'6. Six, six. Like he is your prototypical, just looking at him, SEC defense. But he kind of hasn't been consistent and played well enough to cement himself as that kind of player. Um, Demon Clowney is probably not big enough to take on two blockers in the SEC yet. Does that make him a buck then? Just curious. Yes. Okay. And I think he was kind of recruited as a defensive end, got to campus, you know, still a hell of an athlete and a good player, and I think will be a good player, but just not – doesn't have the body type to be a defensive end in the SEC. Gotcha. Yeah, he'll be an outside backer. Cedric Johnson just has so much length that he's able to get by with being a little bit undersized, but he's another guy like he's, he's an outside linebacker. He, he's not a defensive lineman, a defensive end in this league, uh, but he could be in third down stuff like that. That thing that changes everything when you need as many pass rushers on the field as possible. You can have, you know, Sam Williams on one side and bring in another outside linebacker type. Um, what's my, the Canadian kid's name. Uh, Tavius Robinson. Tavius Robinson, a guy like him, had both of them on the field. And he could honestly – he might be, now that I'm thinking about it, your best bet other than Tisdale to be the other guy. And that's a kid – I'm glad you brought him up because that's a kid that showed some flashes last year where it's like, oh, okay, you might have a little something here. But it wasn't consistent enough, and that's kind of the name of the game with a lot of these kids. But if there's anyone who should get the benefit of the doubt, wouldn't it be a kid like that that comes down from Canada to America? You know, not a normal spring. Uh, During COVID, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> During COVID, I mean, even just if, – if I, I thought about this the other day. I almost wrote about this in the newsletter, and I was like, I'm not going to open up this can of worms. But if if you sent me to college in Canada at 18 – I might end up in jail or flunked out. Like, I, I just, I'm not, like, there's a lot to adjust just moving to a different country and moving to a different part of the continent that, like, I mean, imagine, I, I was trying to think of Tavius Robinson the first time he felt humidity like that. Being, I bet he was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, so, well, like. 
that's know. a kid that probably deserves the benefit of the doubt. What was kind of, did you guys see in him when he came in? Honestly, like, first of all, I had no idea they had college football in Canada before, before some of these guys, I thought it was kind of like, you know, in Spain and in France where like you have colleges, but all of the, like the professional soccer teams, they have academies and you don't play college sports. I thought right. that's what Canada was like. Um, this I was, didn't know they had sports other than hockey up there. True. <laughs> I mean, God, like that's literally, I still to this day couldn't tell you what college they came from. Dean Leonard and Tavius Robinson. I have no idea what college they went to. Um, I just remember watching some of their like, you know, highlights and uh, basically coach Partridge has some connection in Canada that he's used before. And the coach is like, look, like, trust me on this. And I'm sure there were some other back channeling conversations and they went through it all. I don't even remember. I, t- I truly, like, I know that sounds bad. I don't remember what, it was like when those kids came, it was just like, Hey, we've got guys who are playing Canadian football, like semi-pro college, whatever. Here's their highlight stuff. They're good as hell. And they're coming and they came. And I mean, they've, for all the crap that you had to go through last year, like those kids were just, you know, so mentally strong and they worked with us. They're great teammates they are great kids. I'm sure which is not surprising. The Canadians are always nice. Um, but overly really nice, you could say overly that. nice, yeah. And they're gonna be a big part of next year, Dean and Tavius. And they're, they're good players, they really are. And I think they even got a new Canadian kid, I think I saw on Twitter. So it'll be a pipeline for them, yeah. That's uh, the, the Canada to Mississippi pipeline is alive and well. I wonder, you talked about back channeling, and I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but I'm just some asshole with the microphone, so I can say whatever I want when, Correct. when. <laughs> When whatever back channel deals were made, if any, from the Canadian kid, does the dirty money come in loonies or toonies, or do you pay them in American dollars? These are the questions we need answers. What the, you know, is if if the euro gets stronger and the dollar becomes weaker, do we start paying European kids in euros? These are the things we have to think about. It's a uh, it's an emerging market, I would say. So I don't know if we even had to pay those kids. <laughs> I think they okay, were so these kids are just happy to be in America. They're, they're not even asking for two yeah. They're just asking for maple syrup. They didn't even know where they were going. They were like, oh, here, we're going to play college football. I heard it somewhere in the South. They're, they're pretty good down there. Let's just go have some fun. But they actually, they didn't play football during COVID, so they were like allowed to transfer in, in a serious answer. That's he- like how they ended up down here was like they just did their own research or like Partridge – did his research about Canada. Okay. Weird. That makes sense. That's and the so real answer. <laughs> it was Guelph, Guelph, G U E L P H university. I uh, heard they have a great hundred bucks. If you can name what city that's in. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm cheating here. Cause I have his page pulled up. It's in Ontario, which I think is a province. I don't think that's a city, not a huge Canadian geography guy. We'll get it on this, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, I, I I couldn't tell you what city that's in. I'm just gonna go. If you made me guess, I'm just gonna say it's in the city of Guelph because that's always the best bet. You know, just say the same name as the university, the city. I like the, the odds you're playing there. It's yes. probably, it's probably. I think isn't Toronto and Ontario? It's probably yeah. outskirt of there. It's a numbers game. So sure. moving on from our uh, from our Canadian uh, segment on the podcast <laughs> to back toward the offensive side of the football. One of the things that has stuck out so far in camp is. People keep saying, and you hear this every year, and sometimes it pans out and sometimes it doesn't, but there's a guy or two on each side of the football that has a big camp. People love saying that term. You just say it, and it's like, oh, yeah, you can't question that because you all you said was the words big camp. Jonathan Mingo has become that guy so far, 
at receiver, which would be a huge development for Ole Miss, uh, particularly from a depth standpoint at receiver. I'll just leave this in whatever way you want to take this. What do you think Jonathan Mingo needs to do to put it together consistently? Because you've seen the pieces and parts of it, right? His Kentucky game was great last year, but he just didn't do it over a 10 game season. What's, what's lacking with him and what does he do? Great. Well, in Mingo's case, he's had great camps every year. Really. And so that's, I mean, it's good. You know, if he had a bad camp, that would be much more concerning than him having a good camp. Um, His whole deal was really with ball skills. I know I made a small comment about this earlier, but hands and ball skills are completely different for DBs and receivers. And Mingo just struggles to go get the ball at the highest point on deep routes, you know, catching the ball and running being able to locate the football, you know, just those kinds of small things have just really, really, he's really struggled with those where guys like Braylon guys in the past, like DeMarcus Lodge, I mean, they were phenomenal at finding the ball, snatching it out of the air with both hands running, continuing small things. But, um, you know, he, he catches the ball too many times with his chest, with his body, not catching it out in front with his hands. And all these things sound like, you know, dumb football, you know, terms and skills. But at the end of the day, when you're trying to start at a position, if you don't have these small attributes, it's huge. And you see it, you saw a ton where it's like Mingo slants, you know, Corral throws it, it hits him in his chest drop. Whereas you'll see like Drummond and Sanders and Elijah, hands extended, snag, keep running. It's such a small thing, but with Mingo, it really is a huge thing. Because those are the small things he has to get better at if he wants to improve. And I think he will. And like I said, he's had a bunch of camps that have been really good. And I, if he ends up, you know, elevating his game, that's huge for depth and for known depth, I guess we could say. Because he's been a known player for them for a while. And on top of that, imagine that's something you could mask a little bit in high school by being the best athlete on the field. But what you mentioned about that, where it seems like a small thing, where, I mean, how many times did you see last year Elijah Moore catch the football over the middle and he's transferred the ball from the catch point to tucking it in, what, a microsecond? And it's just part of his motion. It's on the field where, like you mentioned, that seems like a small thing, but that makes a gigantic difference because that drop, particularly with the small margin of error Ole Miss had to operate with offensively last year, that drop on second and six or third and four is a massive game-changing play. And so those things that seem like small things, like you said, actually become big things. And it's just funny from, you know, talking to someone who actually was you know, tasked with evaluating this as a job, the things that we don't necessarily see or think are a given are huge things. I mean, I imagine that was probably one of the main things other than footwork that made Elijah Moore great was just that natural, that coming so naturally to him. And it was almost automatic, but I guess Mingo seems like a good reminder that that kind of stuff is not automatic. Like it's kind of the stuff that Plumlee's having to learn right now. Right. Well, It's it's an interesting conversation because when I was, you know, starting off working with Levy, he, I'm asking like, what do you want in a receiver? And he's like, well, I want a big, long receiver, long strider who could run and break over the top of a defense for my guys on the outside. And I want vertical guy or not vertical, versatile guys on the inside. And I was like, well, you know, what about ball skills? Like you need like great hands. He's like, no, like I don't need you to have great hands because I'm going to teach you great hands. 
and it's something you can it's a, something you can uh adapt and learn and it's with, with practice and time and reps i'll make you a better you know have better ball skills and i actually argue with him i think i don't necessarily agree with that but he knows a lot more about football than i do so i was like all right well i'll look for those kind of guys for you um i'm sure Plumley is going through a very similar transition that a lot of guys coming from high school to college are going through catching the ball in traffic is a little bit different when you've got SC athletes around you. And I, I haven't paid too much attention, which I know is bad on my part. So I don't know how he's adjusting, but he's such an incredible athlete hand eye wise, especially at ping pong, you know, <laughs> that he'll figure it out. <laughs> Offensively kind of staying at receiver, Braylon Sanders, it's it, this feels like a long time coming for Braylon in the sense that, well, one, he just needed to stay on the field. But I always remind, like I've written about this a couple of times. I miswrote it. I, re- I checked the other day and realized I've miswrote this for a year. His 2017 year was actually his freshman year. 2018 was technically a sophomore. I don't know why I thought he was a freshman then. But that kid had like 16, 17 catches amongst the likes of DK Metcalf, DeMarcus Lodge, and A.J. Brown. And, like, they weren't, like, garbage time. Like, you go back and look at some of them, it was not garbage time stuff. Like, he kind of legitimately cracked that rotation. He just had trouble staying on the field over the course of the last two seasons. And now you're kind of starting to hear about the bond, rapport, whatever you want to call it, with Matt Corral. Apparently, DeMarcus Lodge played a pretty big role in facilitating their relationship early on. I think a couple of them went out and trained with Corral in California. I I didn't, there there was not much detail given. This was Braylon Sanders actually talking earlier in the week, but it sounded like that was actually before Corral got to campus. Maybe I want to say it was like right after high school. Maybe, maybe I have that wrong, but there's clearly a strong relationship there. He's an interesting case because he's not a huge guy but he seems like a pretty good deep threat. What is your take on him? And to me, it seems like if he has a big year, that really changes the ceiling of this offense. Like they need him to be good and they need him to stay on the field. And he's clearly a talented guy. What is just kind of your overall take on Braylon Sanders? Yeah. I mean, I remember him in the Texas tech game. I guess he was a true freshman. He had a hell of a catch in that game. You know, D lodge had one ridiculous one and Braylon had the other one. Um, and he just hasn't been able to stay healthy and he's had hamstring issues and those are always a pain. Um, it's hard to rehab those, but if he can stay healthy and be out there, he's, he's got, he's got the skills to be your number one guy. Now, is he a number one guy you want on every team? Not necessarily because Ole Miss has seen a lot of number one guys. They've had two and three number one guys at the same time. But he's got he's got such a versatile skill set. He's got great hands. He can play in the slot and outside. He has the speed to beat elite SEC DBs. Um, good route runner, good hips. I mean, he's got everything you want. It's just about staying healthy. And, I, I mean, his upside is being a hell of an SC receiver. And he, I think he's got a chance to be a pretty good pro. Not a, I don't think he's a first-round guy by any means, but he's got a chance to play in that league for sure. That was where I was going next, actually, because Kiffin called him a first-round talent. And I battled with, is that just him hyping up a guy he needs? He knows he needs to have a good year? I mean, what else are you going to say? Actually, this kid sucks. I see him as a day-three kid. Like, obviously, you're not going to say I, that out no. loud. And he, wasn't, but he also wasn't asked directly about that. He was just asked some general question about and Sanders. He said, yeah, the kid's a first-round talent. Would, so – 
when a kid that like I when you say number one and it's not a number one you want to have on every team, the number one you want to have every team, like to me, that's AJ Brown, that's DK Metcalf. Clearly, Braylon Sanders is not built like either of those guys. No. And so he's kind of an interesting kid from a prospect standpoint. Like you mentioned having the speed. Is there one thing that sticks out to you that makes him great when he's healthy? Because he's clearly a very good, very productive receiver, but he doesn't like when you see him outside of shoulder pads, like he's not like a physical specimen, I would say. And I don't mean that as like an insult to him. It's just interesting to me. No, he's built more in the uh, like the Bama, the Henry Ruggs, Devontae Smith, Judy, where they're not like these monsters like AJ and DK, like physically, but they're well put together. They're long. You know, they've got those kinds of traits. For Braylon, it's really body control and body and ball skills. He's not the fastest guy out there, but he's got the ability to break open, you know, the field. But his ability to just adjust the ball in the air, adjust the ball on the fly, catch balls outside of his body, you know, just all those important receiver skills that, like, when you're an evaluator, you look for. He's got all those things. And like you mentioned earlier, those things don't come natural to everybody. And Ole Miss fans have been so spoiled. Absolutely. The guys at receiver you've, ha- you've had and – you know, I've been spoiled and it's t- tough to evaluate kids because I've seen AJ and DK and Elijah Moore at practice and their practice of Braylon Sanders has those kinds of practices. But is he that kind of player? I wouldn't know. He's not that kind of player. And that's not even a, that's not a diss on him at all. Those guys are first rounders, even though they all went in the second round, which is ridiculous. Those are first round talents. And they're proving it. And Elijah, you know everything I've heard from Jets camp that I've seen on Twitter is he's just absolutely kicking everyone's ass. He's like already been anointed NFL rookie of the year. They haven't played a game yet. I'm not even sure that's that far of a, of a reach. Right. But Braille, but exactly. It's not, I mean, the kids, he's just a different level of attitude and Braylon has that too. So, I mean, I would not be surprised. If he comes out and has a hell of a season. Kiffin does what he always does. He gets his best players, the ball. And if Braylon is, seen as the best receiver, which he probably is talent-wise, he's going to get the ball a lot. Before we move on to a couple other things before we wrap up, is Dennis Jackson is a guy that Kiffin mentioned today. And I know I asked you this about receiver and, like, guys who you thought might could or should or you want to step up and kind of add to the depth. And I know you mentioned the Western Kentucky kid, Pearson, and there's a couple other ones. But – Dennis Jackson's a guy whose name come up a couple of times. And I think I brought up the whole Grant Tisdale threw him a touchdown pass in Tuscaloosa. And so I answered questions that's on radio. That's for Jaden Jackson. That's oh, Jayden. so that was Jaden. So I see. And I, I mixed this up from word the word about Jackson. So that is not a great sign in my opinion. I have no idea what's going on with them. <laughs> I had to ask you about the two Jacksons. So I mix, I've mixed that up 15 times since. So he, he threw that's it to okay. Jaden Jackson Dennis yeah. seems like one of the – I know they're not related at all. They just have the same last name. Correct. But of the two Jacksons, Dennis seems like the one that has made more of a uh, more of a flash so far, made a little more noise in the first seven days of camp. Um, I'll just throw both of them in there. Why, why, why the hell not? Like, what do you, what, what you kind of see with those two? And you mentioned with Jaden Jackson not hearing anything about him, you mentioned that's not a great sign. Do you think they can count on either one of those this year? What do you just kind of see generally with both of those? Start wherever you want. Well, it's really just not a great sign for the, you know, the stock I have in Jaden Jackson and Jaden Jackson Island. Oh, so that's one of your guys. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm just, that kid is so special. Like just 
ability wise. I mean, he, but like I said earlier in the other podcast, clearly he's just not getting it together where he needs to. Cause I haven't heard a single thing about him. And um, that's unfortunate. Dennis is a guy who has a ton of talent, a really like elite speed, elite football speed. And has, I think, kind of struggled a little bit with kind of grasping the offense, grasping college football. And that happens. It's not anything against the kid. It just it, – sometimes it takes time really understanding what you're going through. And he's had, I guess, two offensive coordinators. That makes it even more difficult. Um, but hopefully, if he's flashing, that's great. I think he's a guy that could end up moving to the outside because he has so much speed. He can really run by people. Um, he's a guy you want to see on the field. You'll be excited if he's out there because he really does have a ton of talent. It's just a, about kind of the putting it all together, understanding exactly what he needs to do in every play kind of deal, which is not a negative. It, like I said, it happens. Move, moving to tight end before, like that was kind of the last like position thing I had circled down because tight end has been a focal point of Lane Kiffin offense is really for, and I don't want to say going back, I don't pretend to know or remember how big of a tight end played in Kiffin's time at USC or Tennessee, but no. he did have the whatever award winner, Mackey award winner that apparently Evan Ingram couldn't qualify for because that seems like a real legit award. Um, the Harrison Bryant, oh. the kid at FAU. You remember that? You remember the Mackey thing where they didn't qualify Evan Ingram as a tight end because I think sports writers are just grumpy. Um, I don't really know how that works. I should be, shouldn't be blaming that on sports writers, but the reigning Mackey Award winner when Kiffin got to Ole Miss was a kid that he coached at FAU. You had a great transfer tight end. Well, I say that. You had you thought you had a great transfer tight end, Kenny Yaboa. Kenny Yaboa really rode the wave of a pretty good first couple games last year, then just kind of coasted. 100%. Yes. Yeah, that, that was the more and more That's you dig into that. not just you. Yeah. yeah, the more and more you dig into that, it was like, oh, he's a great tight end. It's like, well – he had a great three games, but anyway, whatever. This is not a Kitty Uboa roast session. No. Well, this is going to have something to replace there. So, Chase Rogers, Casey Kelly appeared competent at times in that more, LSU more than competent. Game. I, I'm a huge fan of Casey, and it really was kind of a weird deal because when he got he came to the team like out of nowhere. So I saw him in the locker room, like, God, the kid looks like Chad Kelly. Yo, know? <laughs> yeah, it's his, actually it's his little brother, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But, God, you sort of watch him in practice. You're like, God, this kid's got some hands. Like, he really does have great hands. He uh, He's due for at least a fight or two every single fall camp, which is not – Love to hear that. Yeah. Um, he's aggressive. He cares. And, honestly, like, Levy and we were evaluating the tight end room, and we're all kind of just sitting there, and we're like, you know, we definitely need some more tight ends. But, like, are we not so sure that Casey Kelly can't play this position next year? and be like fully competent. And I think it really went into it. And obviously we were able to get Hudson, which was huge, but Casey Kelly is a real player. He's, he's going to be effective next year for sure. He's had, and it's difficult because Kiffin doesn't get into injuries. As I mentioned earlier, and I think most people know that at this point, he had some sort of minor injury that's cost him time in camp so far. And so it's been a lot of chase Rogers and Hudson Wolf. I know Chase Rogers was a kid that transferred from ULL. Like, how is the cupboard bare there at all? Because it doesn't sound like it is. Because obviously Hudson Wolf is a really talented kid. And then you mentioned Casey Kelly. You're obviously buying stock in it. Like, 
four games into the season or five games into the season, who do you think the guy that most people know at tight end is? I know they can have multiple of them. I mean, how you look at, I know the Baltimore Ravens are a unique situation, but they have like two or three tight ends on the roster that are kind of like somewhat household names, even if you're just a casual NFL fan. Like, sure. how do you see that position shaking out? Who do you think will end up winning the job? And do you think they could potentially use multiple tight ends? Well, they'll definitely be using multiple tight ends because um, all those guys in that room have different skill sets. You know, Hudson, he has the ability to do both. He can be in the core blocking and he can really stretch the field with routes. Chase Rogers, more of a blocker. Um, you know, he's not incapable of catching the football, but you're really not sending him down the field against a linebacker. He's probably not winning that matchup in the SEC. Demarcus Thomas has a little bit of both. Uh he got to campus and put on a ton of weight quickly. Not all of it was great weight, but I think I was about to ask that. Is it good or bad? Not all of it was great weight, but that like, it's kind of a weird deal. You never know what you're going to get, how kids are going to grow into their bodies, but he does have a real wide receiver skill set and the body type to still stay in the core. So I, they're going to use all of them. They're going to use uh, multiple, you know, versions of them. Sometimes they'll be split out wide. Sometimes I'll play in that nub in the core is what they call it. I still don't really totally understand what the core is. Just basically, I think it's the tackle box plus the tight end. Um, it's not bare, but that's a, they're going to have to out-recruit some guys they have on the roster at that position. Um, they, they've got to get some depth there because it's really so important to not only what Kiffin does, but what, Le, what Levy likes to do with that position. And what I guess does that do? What does that do from – sorry, no, go ahead, finish. So I thought – um, no, you're good. Go, go ahead. What guess what you're going to ask? I was just going to ask what, what, what is that? So why is the tight end such a focal point in, in, in this offense? That's a terrible way to ask this. I'll rephrase this. What does that open up when you have a constant threat at tight end? What is that like? Wait, like what other areas does that make more effective? Cause clearly it opens up a lot of different things and they're very effective at doing it. But like, what is the advantage, particularly in this system of having a great tight end? Well, I mean, it's first of all, and a semi-obvious answer, just adds an extra dynamic blocker. You know, you have to account for him, but it's really a lot of it's play action. I mean, these pop passes that, you know, they've installed near the red zone, it seems like the dumbest play in the world, but the linebacker bites every time. And having a guy that's you're competent or not, that you're confident in catching the ball along with the run game, along with your other receivers, it's just another weapon. And that's truly it's, – it's not – it's as simple as that. It's another weapon. And if you have a guy who's really, really talented, like uh, – I guess who's a good example? Oh, my God. The guy from Florida last year. Um, Pitts. You have a guy yes, like who is that, still running wide open across Vaude. Oh, I mean, that's just – it just changes your entire offense. I mean, look what he did for Florida. And they had a hell of a quarterback too. You couldn't even name a receiver on Florida. And that guy was that tight end. And no one could guard him on any team. No one. If you get a guy like that, it just adds a totally different dynamic to your offense, blocking and passing. I can't help but ask this because, you know, your specialization was recruiting. It's interesting. You don't really recruit tight ends a lot out of high school, right? Like you talk about coming from different positions. Most of those kids come from all over the place in different positions. When you're – so, like, did Levy tell you guys, hey, go find me a tight end, and how do you do that? Well, the tight end is another developmental position. Um, I know Coach McIntyre 
he had like this weird theory that he used at San Jose State where it's like, I'm just going to recruit a bunch of tight ends. I'm going to okay. get like nine or 10 of them. And maybe two of them will play tight end. And then the other guy will play offensive line. The other guy will play defensive end. The other guy will play linebacker. And, you know, they're just the body types. They'll figure it out on their own. And it was successful for him. When it comes to recruiting tight ends, there's only so many guys out there that are just elite level, next level guys that are just molded to be a tight end in college football. Uh, the guy Washington from Vegas that's at Georgia was one of those guys. I mean, it's like Zion playing football. Literally, that's what that okay. I think that's I think high praise. I think one of our evaluations was this guy is going to be the first pick in the NBA draft next year. Really impressive. Like just talking <laughs> about Washington kid. Eric Gilbert was another one. You know, he's had a super lucrative college career so far. Not very successful but he sure has made some dough from multiple teams. That's fun. Good for him. Um, Then there are guys like that, but other guys, you know, you really have to develop in that position and you kind of have to mix and match, use different bodies and different times during your offensive possessions. And it's a difficult position. It's just, there's not a lot of ready-made high school tight ends, like plug and play. And here they go. They're going to be, you know, and Hudson is actually one of those guys he is going to be a really good player. So it's actually rare you get a guy like that. What was he playing in high school? What is this uh, 6'6 kid that is a tight end playing in high school? Is he playing tight end? Yes. He plays tight end. That's yes. got to be a rarity, right? Very, very, very rare. You just don't see it. You don't see a guy like that. And I don't think he was playing the best ball in Tennessee. Tennessee doesn't have great high school football, but – he was um, a pretty ho- well-known name in the recruiting. He was highly rated for sophomore through senior year and whatnot. So we knew about him for quite a while. His junior and senior tape, like, really was impressive. It was incredibly impressive. And that's the kind of guy they wanted, a guy that could do both block and run routes. The last thing I have for you before we get out of here is Tiffin said something interesting to me today in his postgame or post-game, post-practice presser, after they've gotten through two scrimmages, it seemed very obvious that both of the backup quarterbacks or guys vying to be the backup quarterback struggled at times. But Kiffin pointed out, and I'm not sure I've heard a coach point this out publicly. It seems very obvious, like one of the things that – I think I could already guess what he's going to say, but go ahead. Oh, no, no, take the guess. Take the guess. I'm curious. Knowing Kiffin, it had to have been something like, you know, these guys, like, just look who they're around. Look who they're That's playing. exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. Damn, you are good at this. I that's swear I did not look at that. I don't really read that much about what's going on, but that does not surprise me. Yeah, I so, promise I did not look at that. No, no, I believe you. I, I believe yes. you. When, when this, was not, this was not some sort of grand conspiracy. I did not uh, slip you some notes as we were talking no, about this no, no, no. live action. That is something he talked about. They did struggle. He did. Look what's around him. A lot of time you're playing with second and third stringers. So I think this is important because until last year, Ole Miss had not had a kid play and complete an entire schedule at quarterback since Chad Kelly in 2015. And I'll just go through it real quick. Chad Kelly got hurt in 2016. He had Shea Patterson in 2017. You had Shea Patterson get hurt. And then it was Jordan Talmu. In 2018, you basically had it, but Tiamu got hurt very early in the Egg Bowl and Matt Corral had to come in. 
Mm-hmm. 19, you had the whatever the hell Rich Rodriguez thought he was doing other than just losing his mind and breaking drywall and coordinator boxes. That clearly was not the same quarterback. So I think it's important, but as evaluators and guys that are cutting up film and trying to look at this, how much do you – I don't even know if handicap's the right word, but like, how do you handicap the guy working with the threes versus the guy that works with the twos and how they did? Um. I know this sounds crazy, but I feel like people have been talking about the second string quarterback battle a while. There's not a whole lot of emphasis going on that, you know, inside that building, I'd imagine right now. Because you don't want to answer it, right? It's not a subject you'd like to broach. Yeah, but I guess Kiffin is so right. I mean, sometimes in these scrimmages, especially because if any guy has a nick and he's injured, he's not playing in the scrimmage because you're not risking it. So by the time you get to, like, the second-team offense, the third-team offense, you know, who knows who's playing receiver? I mean, who knows who's, like, snapping on the ball? It could be, you know, a walk-on tackle deciding that, you know, we need him to play center. And that's not because Ole Miss doesn't have good players in depth. That's just how it works. Right. You're going with your threes and fours. It's your threes and fours. Um, so th- there's a real it's, – it's not easy to handicap how they're doing. I Really, it's all about their decision-making. You know, if they're just back there getting sacked every time, it's like, okay, like that's not really his fault. But, you know, if Luke goes out there and has a clean pocket and throws a dud interception, you can evaluate that. Or if Kincaid goes out there and throws a hell of a ball, you can evaluate that. It doesn't matter who's out there, offense or defensive-wise. But, yeah, I'm not surprised Kiffin said that because, you know, you got to you got to understand what's going on in some of these scrimmages, at least from an inside point of view. It's not always your, you know, good on good in every single uh, rep. That's probably the best place to wrap up because you just read your boss's mind. So we got to go out or former boss's mind. Excuse me. Kiffin's still not paying you, right? Like the, the former boss. My buyout was incredibly low. <laughs> <laughs> Almost non-existent, some would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great place to wrap up. This is great stuff, man. I appreciate it as always. These uh, these keep getting better and better. I am uh, I am learning on the fly, so I appreciate you teaching my dumb brain some more football knowledge. We'll uh, we'll do this again soon. Um, your three podcasts in. How have you evaluated yourself, Jim? Uh, Rat? I, I think you we're going reps, right. practice reps. You podcasting yeah, I think by yourself. So. I saw some stuff on the board that uh, people aren't impressed with your ability to do podcasts. That's not That's fair. Did you hear that dynamite open that I had in the podcast? <laughs> I had to figure out what you were saying when you meant that. I was like, oh, I saw that thread. I, I paid attention to that one a little bit. I have no idea how I'm doing because I don't listen to them because I don't like listening to myself speak. So I hope I'm doing all right. Um, for those out there, I'm trying to do my best. Uh, maybe I'll get a microphone. Maybe that'll help. So. And so microphones are overrated. I'd give you a five-star review so far. I'd say you're if there's a podcast drop, we'll go first round pick so far, but don't let that get you a big head. You still have to put the work in every day and clock in and clock out. Cause uh what's uh what's your favorite coaching cliche? Ooh. Next man up. <laughs> Next man up. Uh Gosh, I, I don't know. I, I got to think about that one. I'll, uh, I'll let you regroup. You had to spend the week thinking about your favorite coaching cliches because the reason I asked you that is I was about to make some smart-ass remark about clocking in every day, but I couldn't think of the right coaching cliche yeah. that they say about that. So <laughs> we'll let you fester on that one. But I appreciate the time, as always. I appreciate everyone out there listening. Um, I don't really, really listen to this either. Uh, there's people that don't like hearing my voice the first time. We've established that much. 
So uh, I don't need to hear it a second time. But anyway, understood. Makes I sense. appreciate uh, I appreciate the time, dude. We'll uh, we'll do this again. Probably check in in another week or so, and then uh, uh, once we actually have some games to talk about, we'll uh, we'll be in the thick of things. But good stuff as always. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. That was Weldon Rodenberg. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Appreciate the uh, feedback on the podcast. We will be back at it on Wednesday with another guest, probably doing our continuing our opponent preview series. So be on the lookout for that. And then, of course, Mailbag Friday. Probably check in with Weldon back in like a week or so. Don't want to overdo it because we do have a long way to go till we actually get to football that counts. So uh, appreciate his time as always. But Uh, That's what we got coming down the pike this week. So I appreciate you guys listening and have a great start to your week.